text this morning. Uh, I don't think it'll be up on the screen. So if you've got a Bible and you want to follow along, I would encourage you to do so. We're in Exodus chapter 34. And this is, uh, once again, a, a story within a story. I'm going to have to set the context for you in the sermon, but it, we'll just read this portion right here. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hands the two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. He said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. O Father, this morning we ask that you would make your book live for us. We believe and confess what the scripture says about itself, that it is living and it is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It goes forth and it accomplishes whatever you purpose for it to do. It corrects us. It rebukes us. It straightens us out. It teaches us righteousness. It encourages us. It fills our hearts with song when we are down. It is a good and holy word. It is a powerful word. Father, believe that when the people of God are gathered in the house of God on the, on the day of the Lord, and the man of God stands and brings the word of God to his people, that you enter into that transaction and you speak. So speak now, O Lord. Master, speak. Thy servant heareth, waiting on thy gracious word. Amen. Well, last week I mentioned that the, the prophet Elijah took shelter in a cave on Mount Horeb, which is a, just another name in Hebrew for Mount Sinai. And I mentioned that the Hebrew actually says that Elijah took shelter not in a cave, but in the cave. And uh, in other words, it indicated a cave that had some history, uh, a cave that was known to the Jewish people. And scholars think that Elijah sheltered in the same place that God hid Moses in in today's passage. This is 
a really rich passage of Scripture, and uh, we can't explore and do it justice this morning, but let me just set the scene for you. While God was giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, he was gone for 40 days and 40 nights, and the, the people got impatient, and they got afraid, and they thought, we don't know what's happened to Moses. He could be dead. Maybe he's abandoned us. I mean, he's, he's been up there for so long. We got to do something. We can't wait for him. And so in their impatience, they looked to Aaron as second in command, and they looked to him to do something. And their solution, for some reason, this seemed like a good idea to them, their solution was to make a golden calf and worship it. Well, God, of course, knows what's going on. And he tells Moses up on the mountain, hey, this is what the people are doing. And, and God, this makes God angry. And God is very angry. And God says to Moses, okay, I'm just going to consume all of these people in my fury, and I'm going to start over again with you, Moses, and I'll make a great nation out of your body. And, and God uses a specific expression to describe his frustration with the people. He says they are a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked. They won't bow their neck. They won't do what they're supposed to do. They're proud. They're arrogant. They're independent. They want to go their own way. And Moses intercedes with God on behalf of the people. And he says to God in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 14 that after he interceded on their behalf, it says, and the Lord relented from this disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Well, Moses goes down the mountain, and now he's mad. He's so mad that when he gets down there, he breaks the two tablets of stone that God had inscribed with his own finger, the tablets that had the Ten Commandments on them. And then there's a bunch of other drama that I won't go into, and about 3,000 people die because they basically say, hey, we're done with this operation, we're done with this God, we're done with Moses, we're going to do our own thing. And they declare themselves to be not on the Lord's side. And the Lord's like, all right, you're dead. And then there's a plague. I mean, it's not a, it's not a happy time. And then God says, all right, it's time, it's time to go up to the promised land and take it. And I'm going to give you the promised land. I'll drive out your enemies, but I will not come with you because you are a stiff-necked people. And my mere presence among you would consume you. It would destroy you because you are a stiff-necked people. And the people are stunned. They're deeply grieved. And in Exodus 33, 4, this is called a disastrous word. God's going to send us up to the promised land, but he's not going to come with us. And so Moses goes to God again, and he intercedes. And God relents, and he says to Moses, okay, Moses, I'll be with you personally, but I'm not present for them like I am for you. That's slightly better news, but Moses still wants more. I love Moses' audacity. He, you know, um, God says, okay, I'll give you this. And Moses says, thank you. Now will you give me more? And God says, oh, all right, I love you, and I'm with you, and you found favor in my sight. I'll give you more. And then Moses says, thank you. And then he asks for something again. He's kind of like your, your 12-year-old, right? And, and Moses keeps pressing God, and God keeps giving in. Listen to Exodus chapter 33 verses 15 and 16. Moses, uh, God says, and he said to him, 
if your presence will not go up with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? In other words, what is it that makes us special, God? It's, the only thing that makes us special is that you go with us. That's true today, too. That's the only thing that makes us special is that God goes with us. And so God then again relents. In chapter 33 and verse 17, God says, okay, I'll go up with you, but there's some stuff that has to happen first. And then Moses pushes things to the absolute limit. Moses prays a prayer that is breathtaking in its audacity. And he says to God, O Lord, you have said that I have found favor in your sight. Show me your glory. This is the mightiest, the hardest request that a human being has ever had the audacity to pray. Show me your glory. What is God's glory? Well, the Hebrew word for glory is is kavod. And it's a rich word. Basically, in its original meaning, it meant something that was heavy or something that was weighty. And in those days, wealth was stored, is measured, in gold. And if you've ever had some gold in your hands, it is incredibly heavy. And so heaviness became associated with wealth or worth. And God is very wealthy. He's the king of the universe. He owns everything. And so God is heavy. He's kavod. And of course, wealth or value is also usually uh, associated with people who are admired, who are sought after, who are famous, who are praised, who are honored. And so by a shortcut in their thinking, kavod came to indicate someone of worth or value that attracted or that merited praise and honor and reverence. And so the glory of God then is that property of God's nature or those properties of God's nature that make it fit and right and appropriate to praise him. To say to other people, will you look at that? When you look at this God, isn't he amazing? Isn't he the most astonishing thing you have ever encountered? And so the glory of God is that about God which demands our reverence and our awe, our worship, our respect, even a kind of holy fear. So when God says to Moses, show me your glory, what he's saying is God Show me that aspect of yourself that sums up all of you and that most clearly displays your character and that makes you most worthy of praise. What is your deepest nature, oh my God? What is the attribute that sums up all of your other attributes? Show that to me, God. Now, what would you think that that might be? We could certainly make a case for his almighty power, right? He is the most powerful thing that exists. He has only to speak, and whatever he desires comes into being. He can fling an entire universe into existence in a moment of time, and he's so great and powerful, it says in Isaiah, that he measures the heavens with the span of his hand. 
We don't even know exactly where the edge of the universe is. And God just goes, eh, it's about that wide. Maybe it's his power. You could argue again that his holiness is his definitive attribute because he is utterly unlike any created thing. He is set apart. He is pure. He is undefiled. He is holy. Maybe it's his wisdom. Maybe it's his justice. Maybe it's any of his other perfections. You could make a case for almost any of those. But what does God say? Moses says, show me your glory, and God says, okay, I will make all of my goodness pass before you then. You see, the deepest truth about God is his goodness. His goodness is his glory. His goodness is his deepest nature. His goodness is that attribute of his being which directs and channels all of his other attributes. He exercises his power, but only to bring about the good. He exercises his holiness for the good. His wisdom, his justice, all for the good. Every aspect of God's being is governed by his goodness. Now think about his goodness for a minute. Think about his goodness as we look at the world around us and we see how God administers the created order according to the scriptures. And in Psalm 104, we have this whole psalm about God's goodness to the created world. Every tree, every flower is intricately and carefully wrought by him as by an artist. He gives food to everything that lives, to the insect, to the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea. It says in Psalm 104 that he sends the lions their prey. Think then about his goodness to man in general. Because human beings are the crown jewels of creation. So it says in Psalm 104, he gives us our food in all of its wonderful variety with its tastes and its colors and its smells. God says that he he gives the plants for people to cultivate and bring forth fruit from the earth. It says he gives them wine to gladden their hearts and oil to make their faces shine and bread to sustain their strength. Think about all the other creatures that God's created. Most of them just eat one thing, right? I mean, think about koala bears. They're, They're really cute, but I'm told that they're really cranky. They're kind of unpleasant little creatures. I think I know why. Because all they've got to eat is eucalyptus leaves. Have you ever smelled eucalyptus leaves? It's like drinking essential oils. And that's all they get. That's it. And God's like, well, I'm going to give you all these wonderful varieties of food. And oh, koala bear, you get those nasty leaves over there. No wonder they're cranky. Think about your dog. I don't know about your dog, but we feed our dogs twice a day, and those dogs, I swear, they have uh, alarm clocks hidden somewhere in the house. Man, five minutes till five, they're pacing around there. They know it's time to eat. And you know what they get all excited about? Brown pebbles that smell like fish. It's no wonder they're always trying to burglarize our food off the table, because their food sucks, right? But they still get really excited when it's time to eat. God says, no, I've given you this wonderful variety. God says, I've given you 
steak and baked potatoes. I've given you biscuits and gravy. You get beans and cornbread. You get gumbo. You get red beans and rice. You get tacos on Wednesday. You get pad thai and sushi and burgers and fried chicken and hot buttered popcorn. Is it any wonder your dog wants your food instead of his? And it doesn't stop there, of course. God gives us friendship. One of the most wonderful gifts in the world is a true friend. Someone who's got your back, who knows your light and your darkness and who loves you anyway and will always be there for you and will always support you to the best of his or her ability. God gives you that gift. He gives us the gift of marriage, one of his creation ordinances. His good gifts to every human being is marriage. And that's why even pagans can have good marriages. Because God has given that and he's blessed it. He gives us sex and hot baths and games to play with our friends. He gives us children. He gives us art and music and dancing. He gives us the joy of reading and telling stories around a campfire. He gives us work. And then he gives us rest and play. He writes his law on our hearts so that there's nobody anywhere in the world who doesn't know right from wrong and who can do the right if they really wanted to. Jesus himself says that God sends the rain on both the just and the unjust, and he's kind even to the ungrateful and the wicked. That's Luke chapter 6 and verse 35. God is good to the human race even though they're in rebellion against him. You know, if your life is painful and broken and hellish right now, it's really not God's fault. The cause is the human heart in one way or another. It comes from human unwillingness to listen to God and to do what he says, even though they know in their heart of hearts what the right thing to do is. Because whenever somebody does something to them that violates that law, they are instantly angry and feel betrayed. There's a deeper goodness, and there's a greater kindness to his chosen ones, to his elect. He calls them from death to life, and he regenerates them, and he forgives their sins, and he crowns them with honor and with glory, and he gives them eternal life. Now, eternal life is not simply about how long it lasts, because if you think about it, the people in hell have a, a, a very lengthy stay. So when, when eternal life, when we talk about eternal life, we're not simply talking about how long it lasts. We're talking about the kind of life that you could actually want to live for an eternity. We're talking about a life of goodness and power. And it starts now. Jesus, the only definition of eternal life given in the whole New Testament is given by Jesus in the high priestly prayer of John, uh, in John 17. And he says, this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life, to just know Jesus. To know God and to know Jesus. That's eternal life. And he becomes, we become rather the special objects of his care and the special objects of his mercy. It says in the scripture that he sends angels to serve us and watch over us. He sends his only begotten son to die for us so that we might live for him. Though our bodies die, he promises that, they, that we will never taste death. Though hardship and calamity fall upon us, he promises to shield us and to provide for us. And for them and them alone, he promises 
that his world is a perfectly safe place to be. If you are in Christ Jesus, this world is a perfectly safe place to be. I'm not telling you that bad things aren't going to happen. I'm going to tell you that even when bad things happen, God's got your back. And God will bring it all around right. And you will be fine. And you will live to see it. He promises glory. He promises that we will reign with him forever in a restored universe where heaven and earth are no longer divided from one another and there is no more sorrow and no more tears and no more death and no more sin and no more suffering and no more pain. And he says, all you have to do to to come into this wonderful state, all you have to do is turn from sin and self and fix your eyes upon Jesus and say, Jesus, please save me. Please bring me into your kingdom right here and right now and teach me how to walk with you in the easy yoke and the light burden that you mentioned. And you invited me to carry that with you. Please, Jesus, just let's do that now. God's glory is his goodness and his goodness is most clearly manifested in the face of our not goodness. Because true goodness cannot let that which is not good stand and persist. And so there are two ways which God will deal with not goodness. And God mentions both of them in this passage. One of them is justice. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 7, God's goodness passes by Moses. And one of the things that God says is that he will by no means clear the guilty and that their iniquity will have repercussions not only for them, but even for their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids. And we see that all around us, don't we? Families ruined by, for generations by trauma and bad behavior. Granddaddy was a drunk and daddy was a drunk and I'm a drunk and my kids are probably going to turn out to be drunks too. We see that. Justice is what we deserve. Justice is the consequences for what we choose to do with God's good gifts. And justice comes to us for our lying and our stealing and our arrogant boasting and our vanity and our pride and our rebellion. Justice comes for our sharp tongues and our critical hearts and our haughty and superior looks. Justice comes for our adulteries and our blasphemies and our ignorance of God. And he gives us everything we need to know him, but we don't care. We can't be bothered. You know, there's a lot of people today that cry for justice. In one way, I understand that. I think it's fine. But in another way, it's one of the worst things you can do. Because if you cry for justice, but you're trapped in your own sins and iniquities, God will give you justice. He'll give you what you deserve. He'll give you hell. Moses knows better than to plead God's justice for the stiff-necked people. Uh -uh. Moses asks for mercy. God's justice would destroy them. Now, in this sermon, I mentioned justice first and then mercy, but God, when he makes his goodness pass by, doesn't begin with justice. He begins with mercy. He talks about mercy first, and he, and he talks about it more fulsomely than he ever talks about justice. Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 6, God says, The Lord, the Lord 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And so Moses pleads once again for the people in verse 9. He says, And now, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. God starts off the story by saying, If I go up among you, you will be consumed, you will be destroyed. For you are a stiff-necked people, that's justice. Moses ends by saying, God, please go up in the midst of us precisely because we are a stiff-necked people. Draw near to us in our sin and our iniquity. Pardon our sin and our iniquity. Have patience with us, O God. Let us be the objects of your steadfast love. Cover us with your mercy. Make us your inheritance. Notice he, he doesn't say give us an inheritance. He says make us your inheritance. Now, what is an inheritance? Well, an inheritance is a precious, valuable thing that a father leaves to his son. And what Moses is saying here when he says make your people your inheritance what Moses is saying is the people of God, and there's only one people of God that God calls. It started with the Jews, and it expanded to every nation, tribe, language, and tongue, Jew and Gentile. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And the people of God, then, are God's special treasured possession. And the Bible says that he, he calls this special treasured possession out of the world, and he places his spirit upon them. He seals them with his spirit and he redeems them. He gives them to the Son. And he says, redeem them and keep them safe. This is your inheritance. And we go all the way to the book of Revelation. And in chapter 21, we see God dwelling among his people. The Lamb is at the center of the throne. And he will be their shepherd, it says in Revelation 7. He will lead them to springs of living water. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Dallas Willard says that God's aim in human history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with God himself as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitants. And that's precisely what the book of Revelation describes. And that community will be created by the goodness of God and the mercy of God and the transforming grace of God by the mighty power of God. I plan on being there. There's a wonderful passage in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress where, where Christian is talking to his traveling companion. He says, tell me about heaven. And John opens up his book, his Bible, and he starts talking about the city, the bright city with the golden walls, the gates of pearl, the streets paved with gold with the angels on every corner in their glory. And he says this, there is nobody there that's hurtful. There's nobody there that's going to snub you 
There's nobody there that's going to cuss you out. There's nobody there that's going to do any evil thing. You could leave your car keys in the car and leave the car unlocked, and everybody would go, oh, there's John's car. I wish he wouldn't have parked there, but there's John's car. Right? Try, that. Try that at Ruleys. No? I don't think your car will last longer. There's nobody hurtful there, and that will include you. Nobody will hurt you, and you will not hurt anybody else because sin is no more. I'm going. Do you want to come? All you have to do is say, hey, Jesus, save me. I want to come. I want to be there at the end. Amen.